together we can create our new digital leader. Connection, engagement, confidence. Do we feel we are in a psychologically safe place? Language shouldn't be able to stop you from career progression. We are changing the, the future landscape of business, of leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Changemaker Conversations, brought to you by HealthTF Corporate Education. My name is Dr. Milena Kupez, and in this series, we aim to bring you insights and stories from leaders and leadership developers who create change and inspire others to do the same. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Hassan Reza. Hassan is Head of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion at the Kent Community Health NHS Foundation Trust. This NHS trust is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, community trusts in the country. Hassan has a particular interest in disability and workforce racial equity and is passionate about working collectively to produce better workplace atmospheres for all. Hassan, welcome to our podcast. As head of EDI, you're in a key position to bring about change. So I would like to start by asking you about you and how you got to where you're now. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on and, and for kind of approaching me with the idea and, and, and being so welcoming. I headed up an equity and diversity department um, and it was a non-traditional route to where I've ended up. A lot of people and colleagues who work uh, in the people director or HR director, depending on, on the organization's terminology, have crafted a well-developed career pathway to end up where they are. Um, and in my case, it, it was sort of one thing led to another. So I, I left um, secondary school uh, having completed uh, an international baccalaureate, um, something that we share. Um, but when I when I left school in sort of 2012, 2013, the IB was still a little bit of, a, of an unknown. Um, we weren't sure necessarily what universities would, would uh, think of us and, and how they'd want us to um, achieve the entry requirements, etc. But I was very lucky to be offered a place to study biomedical sciences. And then I was even more lucky that the university accepted to defer my entry for a year to give me some time to relax, reset, also do a bit of traveling. I, I worked uh, abroad at a few universities and doing some research as well, just to give myself a little bit of a pause uh, between kind of that, that first period of your academic and, and life journey and, and that second one starting. So I was very set on this science life with a particular interest in medicine, uh, and it harps back to my own. Uh, history. I'm, I had cancer as a child. Uh, I've been a very heavy, heavy user of the NHS um, since my earliest years. And as a result, I, I always had this interest in the work that my surgeons did and my oncologists did and how I may be able to, to do something similar. Um, but while I was at university, I very quickly began to appreciate that I had a real um, affinity and attraction towards working with people rather than necessarily working behind the scenes so I wasn't um, academically in a position to to pursue a medical career and and the other options around um, science while they interested me they weren't necessarily offering me the opportunity to have that people engagement and one thing our principal uh, at Dartford Grammar always used to say to us that the unique thing about the IB versus 
the A-levels or other approaches is that you could produce scientists who know how to write essays and speak to people because of the fact that you're studying a subject out of each area. So the people aren't familiar with the IB, um, you do six or seven subjects and you are covering each of the, of the key areas. Um, so you are, you're not just a scientist and you're not just a philosopher. You're not just um, someone who, who's very uniquely skilled in one area, uh, but you get a nice uh, round um, round academic training and, and I found that was very much the case when I was entering my final year that as much as I had that interest in science I also had a great footing having studied philosophy and having done English literature in in sort of the other areas around healthcare so I was looking for opportunities to maybe uh, diversify and, and, and work in a people capacity somewhere uh, and I was very lucky to come across a graduate scheme that Royal Mail offered um, which was in operation and people management um, with an with a eye for us to come in and, and do some quite radical changes to the way that they were uh, approaching their business. So I spent three years there, wonderful years, fantastic training in particular. We were working with a group called People Create Limited, um, who are a collective of, of friends and colleagues from an international uh, sphere. Um, who did all of the sort of senior leadership training that I'm, I'm so I'm doing an MBA at the moment and a lot of what we're doing in that MBA was actually very similar to what we were being offered by people creating I think in the moment maybe a lot of us didn't appreciate as much as I appreciate it now looking back in terms of the people management the psychology the influence uh, theories around how you create teams etc it was a really great footing um, in, in what it can be like to a be a senior leader but also be work uh, within a people-centric business so towards the end of my graduate scheme um, partly because of my own health partly because of um, progression etc I, I looked at my opportunities and where else I may be able to work um, and I was very lucky that the NHS at the time was hiring uh, I joined uh, a, a another Kent Trust I'm currently working at Kent Community but at the time uh, I joined Oxley's uh, NHS Foundation Trust which are based out in North Kent and South London um, as a project support officer and I worked there and then COVID struck and as a result of COVID um, as a very long-winded way to answer your question I'm so sorry because I've done so much talking um, I uh, found myself uh, project managing a culture program of change work that the CEO of the trust had sponsored to address the concerns of the BAME members of staff, but also of, of members of staff with health conditions and, and disabilities and other protected characteristics. So that was my first foray into equality and diversity work. And, and I was very lucky that from there, uh, six months later, I was head of uh, equality and diversity at Lucian and Greenwich. And um, having served my, my uh, kind of temporary contract with them, I was covering maternity leave there. Um, I joined uh, Kent Community as their permanent head of equity, diversity, inclusion. Sounds like a great journey, Hassan. You mentioned um, the culture program of change. So this theme of change and uh, has been present throughout your whole journey and especially mm -hmm. in your role right now. So mm -hmm. I know you and I have been talking about this before and what I would like to talk to you about today, and I know our listeners are very interested in hearing is how do we or can we even measure change do you know we often talk about being data driven or behavior yeah. driven what are your thoughts so and, and you're right i think i entered the working uh, sphere uh, in 2016 when pretty much everything was in flux and going on through change um 
Royal Mail had, had signed a memorandum when they became private to wait for three years before they were going to make any substantial changes. And, the, and by chance, when the stars aligned, when I entered the organization, that three years had just lapsed. So they were looking to make a change. When I've come along to the NHS within the first six months, we've been struck by um, the COVID-19 pandemic in early 2020. And as a result, we had to make change to the way we work. And you're right, change is so fundamental to everything we do. It's not something that is a one-off. And I think that's something we sometimes lose sight of, that change is cyclical. And every couple of years, every couple of iterations, we're going to have to go through change again uh, to make sure that we're still uh, in line with the realities of the, of the world that we're working when we're in, as well as um, the expectations of our, our organization, the community that, that we're both we employ and we serve. But fundamental to change, especially for leadership, especially at a board level, like you say, uh, is data. Um, having worked in informatics as a project manager, I had a uh, window into what that data and the background can look like and the approaches we can take and manipulating that data and processing it, analyzing it and placing it in a in a realm and in a capacity where, where colleagues were able to easily access it. Um, but I think in the work that I do now, there's a very interesting balance between the measurable changes and the immeasurable changes. When you speak about culture, can I directly measure cultural change? Well, on the face of it, I think the answer is no, I can't. Can I measure the secondary outcomes of cultural change? Yes, possibly. And, and I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Very often, um, the answer immediately may be, well, you can't measure cultural change. And, and it's a conversation that's a little bit um, pointless to have because of the fact that you're you're talking about uh, almost kind of sticking a finger in the air and telling me which way the wind's blowing. But the realities are that if I change the culture, for example, I'm going to change my metrics around bullying and harassment. I'm going to change my metrics around the employment of people with disabilities, the employment of people from Black, Asian, and minority ethnic backgrounds, the employment of people from other um, uh, diverse and underrepresented backgrounds. I'm going to change the outcomes of my staff surveys or my pulse surveys or my other um data sets around the experience that people have of my organization and positive movement in those metrics is a good way for me to evidence that we've succeeded in a cultural change of some kind however having said that at the same time there are other programs of work um, that i've partaken in, in the past that i partake in now where i do have to ask the board i do have to ask my my executive leadership to not necessarily vote with or go with the direction of, of the data because there isn't always even a direct or secondary data point I can point towards. So as much as I've said that we can potentially measure cultural change through those secondary metrics, sometimes those can take years and years for them to start flowing through and become apparent. So in the initial um, engagement, I may actually be asking you as a board, you as a CEO, to appreciate that this program of work will not necessarily be measurable in this iteration, in this moment, but in the years to come, I would expect that this, this and this would happen. Where that becomes challenging is I know that boards uh, and, and, and colleagues, especially at senior level, are very used to using data to help drive their decisions. So if you're coming as, as a head of finance or a director of finance, you're coming through as a people director, etc. you can probably bring some very clear data point and metrics with you 
to uh, rationalize and, and support the decision or proposal you're making. With the work that I do, I think because there are elements, um, like I've said, that are very measurable uh, and there are other elements that aren't, I do need my senior leadership to support me in the fact that there will be occasions I'm asking them to support a piece of work that hasn't ha doesn't have a direct metric. Um, and, and having the, the vulnerability and the readiness to do that is, is really key and really important. To try and mitigate and manage that wherever possible, I do try and tie uh, the programs that I propose and the work that I'm doing directly into metrics as much as possible. So a good example is where we're setting up an inclusion investor program. And the crux of that is we have uh, multiple data sets which indicate that the experience of our interviewees who are from protected groups is not the same as, as uh, those from a white British background. Um, and as a result, we're introducing a piece of work to better manage uh, and better uh, quality control uh, the recruitment programs we do. And it's something that I did at Lucia from Greenwich in my last role. It's something that a lot of NHS trusts nationwide are doing. That you can map directly to two, if not three data sets, which we measure on an annual basis, which we report to NHS Signal, which are reported publicly, the what's known as the Workforce Race and Workforce, quali uh, workforce Disability Quality Standards. They're both national uh, expectations on every NHS organization, and we publish them on our website. Anyone from the public can go and look at how we're doing against those. So those you can, you can, I can, when I put the proposal to my board, within the paper that I wrote, there were some very clear outlines as to this is how I'm going to measure it. Inversely, um, I have recently proposed a reverse mentoring program, having run a very successful reverse mentoring program at Lucian and Greenwich. And my ask of the board uh, in the paper that I'm going to be submitting very soon is that there isn't necessarily a direct uh, readout from this. But what I can attest to, having witnessed it firsthand, is that it changes the way in which you think. I have had non-executive directors go on the record in previous organizations reporting how going through a reverse mentoring program, they realize their own inherent discriminatory behavior. They realize their own inherent privilege. They realize their own inherent biases that they were not aware of, despite being very um, senior leaders, people that were very down to earth, people that were in touch with the, the organizations they managed, some of them people who themselves came from protected groups and underrepresented backgrounds, but they still learned so much through that program of work. The change that occurred was when they now go to board meetings, when they are making executive decisions, they factor in what they've learned and it's a consideration in their final uh, voting or, or their final outcome. That I can't map to a data point, but I can, and I think even even here, I hope you'd agree that that there is a tangible benefit to that, but not a benefit that you can maybe grasp in, in the form of data, like there are with other things that you can. Absolutely. And this last project that you mentioned does indeed have extreme power of change and mm. immensely tangible results. I'm wondering though, those seem to be the very effective programs. How do we, yeah. how can we make sure that our border leaders trust you as an, as an EDI leader or other EDI leaders in other organizations to be able to undertake these? Because there is much a different timeline to it. Like you said, uh, when we're looking at data, uh, it's secondary comes after the real culture change. So is it hard to convince um, the boards and execs to trust you over a longer period of times. 
So my advice to other heads of EDI or, or people that work in EDI, leading on EDI would be that you need to first build that relationship with your executive team. They need to have the faith and the belief in you as an individual and your team and the programs of work that you're going to be doing um, to then go on that journey. Um, if, if I use another example, it's almost a bit of like a faith sleep. There, there are parts of, of faith in which uh, you as an individual are, are kind of accepting things on the basis of that that is what I believe. Um, and to a degree, you're asking the board to make a bit of a faith leap, leap because um, you are saying that actually the outcomes of this may come in, in two, three, four years from now. Um, but I need you on the basis of, of what you've seen of me previously and, and the work that we've done and the outcomes that there have been from that to, to have that belief um, and, 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 and support the work. Um, and on that front, it, it, that means that it's not necessarily the first thing you should do when you jump into an organization is start to talk about those big ticket items that are more uh, abstract and, and do have deliverables that aren't as necessarily as immediately measurable and tangible. Start small, start on the ground, start with your own team, look at what you can do to start to build that rapport and build that belief. The second thing is work with other organizations. So one thing we're very lucky with in the NHS is that there is within uh, heads of EDI a genuine desire to help one another. Um, there isn't a, a competitive nature. There isn't a protective nature. If I've done something well at Kent Community, I'm very ready to open the doors to my colleagues at other trusts. When I was working on developing our inclusion ambassador program, um, my colleagues at Mason Tunbridge Wells, my colleagues at Dartford and Gravesham, my colleagues at Medway, kind of across the system, were ready to not only guide me and, and counsel me on a one-to-one -one basis, but actually even open up their documentation and the way that they'd done things to me for me be, to be able to benefit from. And even more kind of helpful and vulnerable uh, from them was be open and honest about the things that didn't go well at their trust with the program they implemented. And as a result, for me to be able to reflect on, okay, well, what can we do differently at Ken, uh, given that I know that these things um, went down a certain way or didn't go down a certain way, other organizations. When I've then written my proposal to the board, I've included uh, direct references to that learning. I've included appendices which outline the, the, the approach taken by other organizations. And I think all of that helps to build uh, a, a, a rapport and an integrity with the board for them to appreciate that it isn't just a program that I've come up with in a room in silo alone, but we, we, there's a lot of thought and there's a lot of work that's gone into it. I think that's probably a little bit harder in the private sector. Um, but one thing that I know that uh, organizations who offer EDI programs are very good at doing is collaborating with you and helping bring your board along on that journey. So they may be able to bring in customers from other organizations who can come and talk to the board, so other board members that they've worked with in the past, you can talk to your board about the programs of work. Um, and very often they're working with people in the public sector, they're working with people in very uh, kind of uh, solid and, and, and uh, trustworthy organizations where you can take the opinion, you, you will get an honest answer, so you won't necessarily um, get a, a positive response from those colleagues, you will get the honest opinions of them, whether or not it was a program that was successful or not successful, whether or not there were challenges, what things they may do differently. Um, and I think that's something that uh, as, as much as possible I try and do, and I know other heads of VDI across the NHS try and do whenever our colleagues uh, in, in non-healthcare settings reach out to us is offer that guidance and that support. So I think there's, there's a lot of um, that, that fundamental relationship building and communicatory work that you can do to help bring your board on that journey. Um, but the final thing I'll say is that 
it's also about you as an individual. So coming to Kent, I was coming from Lucian and Greenwich, an organization who were very invested uh, in the equality and diversity work they were doing. And the NHS as a whole, as have many organizations, but probably not all in the post-COVID, post-murder George Floyd era, had to either get with the times or accept that these pieces of work are important. So coming to Kent, I was very acutely aware of wanting to work in an organization where there was a senior level of commitment and support of this work, not only approval of, but actual uh, ready uh, involvement uh, and, and um, engagement and fulfillment of, of the, the ideas that the EDI team would be bringing. And I very much found that. So through my recruitment, uh, it was very clear that this was an organization who wanted to move forward with their EDI agenda, who wanted to be challenged, who were ready to hear uh, a dissenting or an alternative opinion and actually take that on board um, and consider it with, with the right, uh, you know, uh, backing, etc. So that's the other thing for me, for other, for other colleagues out there is where possible, hold your, your senior leadership accountable, look into senior leaders and, and executive teams and boards, etc. If you are currently in the market for moving uh, to another organization, make sure that you're kind of placing yourself in the best uh, possible opportunities, because at the moment, the EDI agenda is at the very top, if not at the top of a lot of organizations um, kind of to do list. And as a result, it places us as as specialists and uh, kind of practitioners in the area in a, in a kind of unique place, maybe for a lot of us where we have an opportunity to really ensure that we're able to align ourselves to organizations who align well in turn with our own uh, agenda and our own beliefs. Thank you very much, Hassan, for sharing this precious advice. It, it does indeed sound that for real change to happen, there needs to be trust, there needs to be collaboration. Mm. And out of that, there will be the essential communication needed so that it all works out. Yeah. And it almost sounds like um, what you're saying, and correct me if you're wrong, that we need to make the process of change the goal, and then mm. the outcome will follow. 100%. 100%. Great. I really like that idea. You did mention at the beginning that it is also equally important to run at the same time some initiatives that are yeah. a little bit data driven. So you're almost yeah. creating a blend. Yeah. So Exactly. Perfect. And so are there any risks of being too data driven? I think the the big risk of being too data driven is you're going to let opportunities go by that could have a big impact on your culture and on the atmosphere within your organization because they're not data tangible. Um, so like I said, the reverse mentoring concept, concepts such as uh, even, you know, I've, I've proposed a podcast within my organization and the organization is very supportive of it. Um, the main objective of that podcast is to make uh this the central organization more approachable and and easier to reach for colleagues across the organization um is there a direct necessarily data point uh benefit that's going to come out of that maybe not like i say if, if we really extrapolate there, there probably i'd hope would be would be some positive outcomes in our staff survey etc but it's a secondary uh, uh achievable um if the organization wasn't appreciative of the fact that these are all things that I'm, uh, I'm doing and the team's doing and we as an organization are doing um, with 
the betterment of our culture and the betterment of our engagement and the betterment of making us a great employer, um, I think there'd be a risk we'd, we'd let some of those things go past. Uh, and I have heard of organizations where because there is such a focus on data, um, sometimes they have missed out on some really good opportunities. And likewise, I think sometimes senior leaders um, have their own understanding of data and that may not necessarily align with what the data is actually telling us. So another place I'm really lucky is that I have a dedicated data analyst who sits within my team, um, who is a fantastic at their job, uh, but B has a real knack and natural ability for being able to translate what the data is telling us, and what the data is showing us into very um, accessible and approachable visualizations and, and kind of written analysis, et cetera, which means that people across the organization, regardless of their uh, innate skills within data and informatics are able to access it. I myself, as much as I said that I started my career in informatics, I'm not a data person. Um, I've never been kind of uh, completely comfortable with as much as I did do data analysis as part of my BSc. Um, it's not my kind of skill set, but through the colleague that I have in my team, I found myself being able to really uh, A, understand for myself and B, then shore up my proposals and my conversations at both senior level as well as around me and, and with the colleagues that we lead uh, in, in those conversations because we're able to really bring in the data elements that have been so um, excellently analyzed and described uh, by my, my EDI analyst. Um, and that's another thing that I'd encourage other colleagues to look into is, is see how you can either bring in an analyst into your team or build a good working relationship with informatics um, or, or whoever in your organization is responsible for the analysis of data uh, so that you can be producing outputs and explanations and, and even raw data sets that are representative so that we don't run this secondary risk of data where we become so focused on data that we don't necessarily even look at well, what is the data telling us and instead we become focused on actually the raw digits and moving digits rather than moving what the in, in actual intentions are which is what's behind the data which is the people. I actually couldn't agree more. It really sounds like it's about blending the qualitative and the quantitative elements into yeah. a perfect cocktail for each organization. And, you know, also having the courage to keep experimenting with that cocktail and changing it up according to the results and according to the dynamic circumstances. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. On that note, I have one last question for you that we like to ask all of our guest speakers. And that is, what is the one thing you know now that you wish you would have known 10 years ago? So I think, to, like I said right at the beginning, 10, almost 10 years ago to the date, um, or actually, yeah, exactly 10 years ago to the date, I was, I was in Pakistan. I was working at Al Khan University as a research volunteer uh, in sort of six months into my gap year with six months to go before university started. And I just, I wasn't sure on, on what the future held. I, I had no kind of grasp as a, a what, an 18, 19 year old um, as to where I was headed. Um, I had this desire for medical school, um, but not necessarily, like I said, right at the beginning, the academic qualifications to be able to do that. Um, and I think that trusting my instincts and trusting 
the experiences that I've had as a patient, as an individual, as someone with a disability in academia, as someone from an underrepresented ethnicity in the geographical area I live, I now, I've always lived in Kent, I now work in Kent as well, but I've grown up in an area where um, we were the only non-white British students in our primary school. There was uh, some level of diversity in our secondary school, it's got a lot better uh, as the years have gone on, but all of those experiences have led me to where I am now. Um, some of them without planning, some of them with planning. And I think just that having that faith in um, that there is a pathway, <laughs> as much as it may not be a clear pathway, um, that it will work out. And I know it's a huge cliche and about I wouldn't change a thing, but honestly, I think that there's so many experiences that I've had in the last 10 years of that journey from through university into the working uh, and professional life in the last sort of six to eight years, um, as well as in my life in, in the last 28 years that have led me to a place where I really feel like um, I'm able to offer something back to the people around me and, and, and offer something back to um, the people above me as well, as well as also still continuing to learn uh, and continuing to benefit from all of the experiences that are still coming my way, um, be those professional or personal uh, and, and, and developing on. Thank you very much. That is a great answer. I love it. And I like the idea of faith and the idea of trusting because it links yeah. back to what you were saying initially about there having to be trust in yourself and yeah. within people to be able to bring about real transformation. Yeah, 100%. Hassan, thank you so, so much for speaking with me today. It has been a great pleasure to learn about how change can be driven by both data and behaviors and how we can really go about finding the sweet spot to bring about the transformation we're looking for. Thank you. Honestly, I wish you best of luck with all your projects and I really look forward to hearing all about the amazing results I know you will achieve. Likewise, likewise. And I know we'll stay in touch and it'll be a pleasure maybe to come back at some point and, and we can offer an update into what's going on in, in the NHS and, and in the world of EDI in general. Absolutely. I would love to have you back on the podcast. So on that note, I really look forward to speaking with you soon again. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Changemaker Conversations. Would you like to talk further about unlocking human potential and creating positive change, either one-to-one -one or on this very podcast? If so, please visit haltf.com slash inspire. Until next time, goodbye.